0: Well, it is good for us to be together this morning. There is no other place than with God's people that I'd rather be on Sunday morning giving praise and worship to our great King. I hope that you have found your hearts encouraged already this morning by what we've sung together. You can take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I know that our scripture reading was from Luke 11. We're not trying to confuse you. That was the parallel passage in the other gospel that relates to what we're looking at in Matthew chapter 7. You can find that on page 812 in the Pew Bible, if that is useful for you. Matthew chapter 7. We're continuing our series through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're nearly finished with this study in the Sermon on the Mount. We have just a couple more sermons before this series is finished. And then you're wondering what's next. Uh, Well, we're going to enjoy some time together in the Psalms. And you can remember that uh, by just remembering we're going to spend some time in the summer in the Psalms. So that's what we have to look forward to after we finish the series in the Sermon on the Mount. As we've worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we've covered a lot of topics, a lot of truths. And one of the primary truths that Jesus is teaching through the Sermon on the Mount is the identity of citizens of God's kingdom. Who are the citizens of God's kingdom what do they like? How do they behave? What is this Christian ethic that they live? He describes and he clarifies how true citizens of God, God's kingdoms live through the ordinary, everyday circumstances of life. I wonder how much we might be able to recall about what Jesus has taught about kingdom citizens, how they are to live. If we can just try to give some thoughtful reflection to that. I know we have a hard time remembering what happened yesterday, let alone the last eight or ten weeks together. But let's quiz ourselves a little bit. Matthew chapter 7 we'll start with what's most recent what we looked at last week and you can cheat by looking in your bibles by the way in Matthew 7 we were taught by Jesus in that portion of scripture to that we must exercise kingdom citizens must exercise proper judgment while at the same time not becoming hypocritically judgmental in Matthew chapter 7 verse 6 we learn that kingdom citizens have to have the wisdom to know not to throw their pearls before pigs that's a tough balance to get right. We need to be able to exercise right judgment, but not hypocritical judgment. In Matthew six, kingdom citizens are described as people who serve God and they don't serve money. Also in that same chapter, we, we learn that king, kingdom citizens don't give way to living anxious lives. Jesus repeatedly says, "Do not be anxious." Or in the beginning of chapter six, Jesus teaches that kingdom citizens, they don't hypocritically pray. They don't hypocritically fast. They don't hypocritically give. And if we look back into chapter 5, we remind ourselves that Jesus taught that kingdom citizens don't give way to sinful anger or lust or adultery through sinful divorce. So when you stack all of that, what Jesus has been teaching through the Sermon on the Mount about kingdom citizens, it can feel overwhelming, can't it? And so how are we going to process everything that Jesus has taught? Especially as we consider our responsibility to embrace and obey what Jesus has instructed. And so what becomes apparent as you study through the Sermon on the Mount is that the ethical expectations of God's kingdom require something no one has on their own. In other words, no one can behave like a kingdom citizen and make themselves a kingdom citizen based on their own efforts. The ethical expectations required of kingdom citizens, it proves that there's something different, something entirely new at work within kingdom citizens. And so the Sermon on the Mount proves that kingdom citizens are people who have the new life of God and His power at work in them through repentant faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes a person a true citizen of God's kingdom. Kingdom citizens are people who have repented and believed in Jesus through faith and they therefore have the power of God's Spirit at work within them. But the question still remains, how, how does the power of God flow through and strengthen Christians to live out the ethics of God's kingdom? And I believe the answer to that question is in part found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7-12, what we're looking at this morning. So today we're going to ask and answer that question. How do Christians live as kingdom citizens? We're going to start by understanding that kingdom citizens pray. And then we're going to marvel at God's goodness that encourages us to pray. And then we're going to finish by looking at the results, or maybe the better word is the effects, of all of this truth that has on kingdom citizens in our relationship to others. So before I begin, though, I want, us to, I want to just to clarify who this message is primarily for, because I don't want to have any confusion here. This sermon this morning is primarily for those who are citizens of God's kingdom. So in other words, this sermon this morning is primarily for Christians. If you're not a Christian, we're not singling you out. We're not telling you to go somewhere else. We just want to make sure that we don't confuse you So that you would assume that because you're at a church and you hear Christian truths and the pastor seems to be speaking to everybody, that that means you. This sermon is for Christians who are kingdom citizens And that I mean this, people who have through repentant faith embraced and treasured Jesus to be their Lord and Savior. If that is you, then this sermon is going to be full of fresh breezes of God's grace for you. If you're not a Christian yet, then we, we, we're not asking you to leave. Please don't. You may if you'd like, but we ask that you stay. You're, you're here this far, right? Just hunker in with us because we believe that you're going to find the truths of God's kingdom citizens to be encouraging to you and we hope it'll want you to, to learn more about what it means to be a kingdom citizen, to be a Christian. And so after the sermon, if you have questions, if you're not a Christian, you have questions we'd encourage you to go ahead and find, find me, find another elder, find a church member, somebody who looks like they belong here. Find them and ask them questions about this because it is our desire and joy as a church family to display God's glory and the best way for you to know God's glory is to know Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to learn how do kingdom citizens live as they ought. The answer is simple. Number one, kingdom citizens pray. Kingdom citizens pray. I know this is, might be a little bit... Uh, um, uh, Disappointing because you're looking for some sort of secret. Well, this is what Jesus says: Matthew seven verses seven to eight. It's not the first time Jesus has taught about prayer. He taught about prayer in Matthew chapter six when he gave instruction about prayer. That's where in Matthew's recording of what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. But here in Matthew seven, Jesus gives three commands about prayer. Do you see it there? He says, "Ask, seek, and knock." The simplicity and the universal scope of what Jesus says here is astonishing. I and mean, look at it. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And then in verse 8, Jesus gives the reason why kingdom citizens should ask and seek and knock. You see that in verse 8? For, because everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So based on that simple, straightforward reading of that text, are you now at all interested in praying? I hope so. That's the intent of this passage. God has promised to hear and to answer the prayers of his people. Uh, but some of you have the cynic in your mind, like, like me, right? You're thinking, yeah, but I've prayed, I've asked, I've seeked, I've knocked. and It doesn't seem to be working yet. So I want us to, before we can enjoy the encouragement of this passage, which really it is, let's try to undo some of the common misunderstandings about this passage. Some would like to think that Jesus is giving a blank check promise that gives a carte blanche guarantee for anything we might ask. This name-it-and-claim-it theology is not biblical. The God, our God is not a cosmic genie that we let out of the bottle through the friction of our prayers to command to do whatever we wish. That is not the God of the Scriptures. We have to keep reading in this text to understand what Jesus is actually saying here, and we're going to see this in a little bit more detail a little bit further on in the sermon, but if you look at verse 11, Jesus clarifies what exactly we are promised to receive. In verse 11, he promises that we're going to receive good gifts. So just kind of put that in your mind. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Another misunderstanding about this passage is that if we ask God long enough or with enough persistence, then God eventually is going to cave and give us what we've been asking for. And to be sure, there is a sense of persistence in this passage. I mean, even the verb tenses in verse 7, ask and it will be given, are present tense. So you could read it. I know this isn't most natural, but you could read it this way. Keep on asking and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and and you will find. You could put it in that present tense. So to be sure, Jesus has taught about persistence in prayer. You can find that in Luke chapter 18 where he gives examples to to talk about persistence in prayer. But here in Matthew 7, Jesus is not teaching that if we ask with enough persistence, that eventually we're going to get God to cave into our requests. Those are two common misunderstandings. And by the way, Jesus himself disproves those common notions. We have a historical record of just a few of Jesus' prayers. One of them is recorded in Matthew 26. And that's where Jesus was in a place called, it was a garden. It was in a place called Gethsemane. And he is there on the eve of when he is going to be betrayed and then arrested and then eventually led to be crucified. And he's in this garden and he's anticipating the suffering work of redemption and he prays and he asks God, the Father, to let this cup pass from him. And that the word cup there was a a reference to the cup of God's wrath. That he would bear and he would suffer for the sins of all who would repent and believe. And Jesus asked not once, but not twice, but three times. Lord, let this cup pass. But God the Father did not let the cup of suffering pass. So it was Matthew 7. Does Jesus not believe what, he, what he's teaching here? I mean, he asked not once, but twice, but three times. Ask, seek, knock. I mean, what's wrong? But actually, God did give Jesus his request because Jesus also prayed, not my will, Lord, but yours. So in Matthew chapter 7, we need to understand that God is, giving his, God is promising to give his people everything that they need to live as citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus brings the sermon to a close, Sermon on the Mount. We just have a, a few more passages to look at. He as he brings it to a close, he's pointing his people to the unending source of power and wisdom and strength to live as kingdom citizens. So for instance, do we need, do we need wisdom to make right judgment calls? Ask God. Do, do Christians need strength to trust in Him so they're not anxious? Seek God in His kingdom and be assured that God will give all good things to you. Do you need faith to lay up treasure in heaven and instead of greedily hoarding wealth on earth? Well, then knock on the door of God's grace and riches and taste and see that He is good. We could go on and on, but for the sake of this morning, we won't. But I think we get the idea that Jesus here in Matthew 7, it's a glorious promise that we can come to God and ask over and over and over again and seek Him for what we need to live as citizens of God's kingdom. And God is going to give and give and give. Do we realize also that there's an implied condition in this passage? That if we do not ask, we will not receive. Some of you might think, oh, but God is just kind of good all the time. And he just loves to give stuff away. And he's kind of like the grandpa that just is going to give you stuff, even though you don't you don't ask to be sure. God is good. But friends, this text implies that if we do not ask, there are things that we will not receive. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote it this way in James chapter four, verse two. He says, you do not have. Here's the reason. Because you do not ask. There are good things we might never have or experience if we do not ask God for them. And that's not a threat, friends. That's an invitation. Test the generosity of God. Ask, seek, knock, and see and taste that God is good. And so we've established that kingdom citizens are people who pray. Why? Because they can't live out their citizenship as God's kingdoms without God's power at work through their lives. But if you're like me, I, I still need encouragement to actually pray. That's how cold my heart can be. And that's what Jesus does in the next few verses. Jesus is going to give us some encouragement and assurance that I think are intended to inspire us to pray. And that's where he goes into this. He draws this uh, analogy uh, from human parenthood when he says in verse nine or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give gifts, give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father, will your Father who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? So we've established that kingdom citizens pray. Number two, we established that God's extravagant goodness inspires Christians to pray. God's extravagant goodness inspires Christians to pray or motivates Christians to pray or whatever word you want to use or entices Christians to pray. Jesus is giving an analogy from human parenthood and He encourages us to pray. And He's contrasting human parenthood with divine parenthood. It, the analogy it appeals to the basic instinct of human parents to do good to their children. Now, it doesn't overlook the sad reality that some parents deliberately do evil to their children. But that occasional exception doesn't disprove the rule that Jesus is drawing from here. Ordinarily, we understand that parents seek to do good to their children. In fact, it's so much so that you could commonly say that typically parents do what uh, children do what their parents want. No, no, parents do what their children want. That's how it goes. If kids want something bad enough, long enough, earnestly enough, often parents find a way to give it to them. There's this innate desire in parents to give good to their children. When asked for food, a human father isn't going to give his son something deliberately unhelpful or unnourishing. That's the analogy that Jesus is drawing from. And by the way, yeah, Jesus is talking here about, you know, if a son asks for bread, give him a stone, or ask for fish. Those are staple food items. If you're a parent here, you're just going to chuckle, but... Kids ask for food all the time, don't they? I mean, kids are constantly hungry. They're constantly asking for food. They just eat lunch and now they're asking for a snack, right? And now they want, they've eaten dinner and now they're asking for more food. They're constantly hungry. I don't know, but I wonder if there's just some of that kind of baked into this idea of you can't out-ask God. I mean, we as parents know that children ask for food all the time. God is not perturbed by that. He's not upset by that. He has said here, Jesus is saying, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. But Jesus turns the analogy in verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It's interesting for us to note here that Jesus assumes the sinfulness of the human race. This is what he means there by, if you who are evil. You might be wondering, what do you mean? I'm an evil parent? Well, Jesus is assuming the, the sinfulness of the human race. It doesn't mean that people are as bad as they possibly could be all the time. What Jesus does here is he recognizes that the human race exists in a sinful condition. And that common sinful condition is is what we call sinful depravity. It's the reality that our entire personhood is touched by sin because we're born sinners. You can read more about that if you want. Mark this passage down in Romans chapter 5, particularly verses 12 and following. Talk more about that doctrine of universal sinfulness of the human race. Yet despite that sinful condition as human fathers or human parents, they're still human parents are still ordinarily eager to give good to their children. So how much more your Heavenly Father, who is untouched by any sin, will give good gifts to those who ask Him? And that's where the analogy turns on that phrase, how much more will your Heavenly Father give? Human parents, even at their very best, are bad when compared to God. So think of the best expression of human parenthood. Maybe it's maybe it's your parent. Praise God for that. But even the best expressions of human parenthood is bad when compared to God. God is so much greater in his eagerness and capacity to, to give good to those who ask him. He's faithful, he's steadfast in love and loyalty. He he's not irritated or, or easily perturbed. He's slow to anger. And this is where we find our interest peaked then when we think about receiving good things, right? We all like to receive good things. In fact, this is the idea of prayer that we like the most. It's an access to God to ask and receive. But what are the good things that God promises to give? Well, in Luke's record of this teaching, which was read for us this morning, it's not good things that's in that tra- in that phrase. Luke records it as Jesus saying that God will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So how do we take the good things of Matthew 7 and the Holy Spirit that's promised in Luke 11 and and make them harmonize to to, to say the same thing or or to help us understand what Jesus is talking about? How do we coordinate these two ideas? I believe that the good things of Matthew 7 and the Holy Spirit of Luke 11, it's implying that the spiritual realities that we need to live out our kingdom citizenship are given by God and applied to our lives through the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. So I believe the good things that Jesus is talking about are are not primarily just physical needs. Now, certainly it it includes that because Jesus talked about in Matthew 6, listen, if you have need for food or or, or clothing, don't don't be anxious. God's going to provide for you. And and then the analogy he uses in Matthew 7 here is if a son is asking for bread or, or for fish, God's not going to give a serpent or stone. So certainly it can include these basic needs of our life, but I believe that it includes more than that. And this is where we often our perspective is often so small, so narrow, that we run to God, we feel the urgency in our hearts, particularly for our physical needs, and we are oftentimes kind of clueless about the spiritual realities that are around us that we need even more. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. Matthew 7, verses 7-8 through is not a blank check promise that gives a carte blanche guarantee for anything we might ask. But when we really think about it, we should be thankful that that is not what this passage is. Think about it. Imagine if you had everything that you ever asked for. I mean, that would be a horrible life, wouldn't it? Just think of the horrors that would happen to the people around you if you had everything that you asked for. One Bible scholar writes it this way, if it were the case that whatever we ask, God was pledged to give, then I, for one, would never pray because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. And I think if you consider it, you will agree. It would impose an intolerable burden on frail human wisdom if by His prayer promises God was pledged to give whatever we ask, when we ask it, and in exactly the terms we ask, how could we bear the burden? I want us to understand that according to Matthew 7, the granting of our needs is based on an important condition. And that condition in verse 11 is that God promises only to give good things. Our Heavenly Father gives only good gifts to His children. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good and every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is all-wise and all-knowing and all-powerful, and He is fully capable of, of making the right judgment call on what gifts are good for us and what would not be good for us. He's up to that job description. We aren't. But that brings us to what is probably the point of greatest tension then for our hearts in this text. Because all of us in here who are Christians have probably asked God for something that is good. And we've asked God for that thing over and over and over, and yet we have not yet received it. And so what are we going to do with that? Well, this is troubling, especially when we read a promise like this in Matthew 7. So I'm going to use just a couple of examples um, to help us think through some of the difficulty of this text. And these examples aren't meant to, point, to pick on anybody in particular. If this example doesn't resonate with you, then pick one that does resonate with you. But some of us in this room have asked for a spouse and have not yet received that from God. Others of us have asked for children and we have not yet received our request. Or maybe we've asked for health and healing from some sickness or disease or physical difficulty and God has not given us our request. And the list could go on. Maybe it's career. Maybe it's some sort of family relationship restored. These are just representative examples. And you might say, well, man, it just feels like God is not filling up, you know, living up to His end of the deal here in Matthew 7. And you say, I even, you know, you say the condition according to the text is that God will give good gifts. And you might say, huh, you might react against that because you say, what am I asking for is good? For instance, using the examples I just gave. I mean, Proverbs eighteen twenty two says, he who finds a wife or spouse finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I mean, God himself says that a spouse is a good thing. I'm asking God for that. He hasn't given it to me. Or maybe you are asking God for children. And of course, the Scriptures even say that children are a heritage, are a blessing from the Lord. Or maybe you've asked God for healing. I mean, how many people did Jesus heal? It was an expression of the goodness of Jesus. And as Christians, we're instructed to have our hope in the eternal life, which is promised to be a life of no sorrow, sickness, or sadness. And how much sorrow and sadness is caused by sickness? And so you say, but, but I, I, it seems like God has even said that this is good, and I'm asking God for it, and why is He giving me my request? All of this is true, even if God still does not grant your request. Just because we think something is good, and even if we see it as God's goodness in someone else's life, it does not mean that it must be good in our life right now. Now, please do not leave. Don't, don't be too angry, right? Before we get too angry, let's remember that we are not God. God is God. And if if he is truly God, if he is God, then then he truly does know what is best. And we must trust that God has all wise reasons for what he does, and he does not grant, for what he does, and what he does not give in response to our prayers. Now, I know that I have not resolved the tension in your hearts of unfulfilled longings for things that you believe are that we know even from the Scriptures are good things and we see the goodness of them in others' lives. I know it doesn't relieve that tension in our hearts for those things. But will we trust in the unflinching, unfailing goodness of God even despite the burden that we carry of unfulfilled longings in our heart? Now, I'm going to give an example here, and in giving this, I'm not saying that if any of us have unfulfilled longings in our heart for things that we believe are good, that, that means that we're childish. Well, maybe I do think that, in a, in a sense. I think we all are childish in response, in, in comparison to God. But I think that's maybe where this illustration will help us. It's possible, right, for a child to ask for something that they think is good, but in reality would be bad for them. And the child is utterly convinced that it's good. Whatever it might be. I mean, you, we could have examples that are just kind of humorous, right? I mean, the child, you take them to the donut shop and they, instead of one donut, they want a dozen donuts all for themselves. And you know, no, that's not to be good for you. Or if, if a three-year-old wanted a pocket knife for their three-year-old birthday, I don't know, which three, what, who in here has a three-year-old that wants a pocket knife for their birthday? Probably nobody. That's why this is a safe illustration, Right? But if a three-year-old wants a pocket knife for their birthday and they describe for you, this is quite the three-year-old, right? They describe for you all the reasons, all the things that they could do well with a pocket knife, all the good they could do to the world, how they could serve society. You as a parent would still say, no, because I know better than you, even though you're giving me the best responses. I guess an absurd illustration. But friends, if that's absurd... Between a three-year-old and a parent, how much more absurd is it for the creature to argue with the Creator about what is good when He is the definition of good? It's been said that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. Which, again, this is why another reason that illustration falls short because that's just focused on the child and the parent. But friends, we don't live in a world that's just us and God. We live in a world that's connected to everyone else and all the grand purposes that God is doing in the world. He's accomplishing through you in part, yes. Think of the Old Testament character Job. If you don't, are not familiar with that passage, uh, I'm not recommending you read it just yet. I recommend if you're new to Christianity that you talk to a Christian friend about this character. But in the Old Testament story of Job, this is a man who lost everything. He lost all of his children, he lost all of his possessions, he lost his home, and it appears by de facto he lost his marriage, or at least a healthy marriage, because his wife said, just curse God and die. That's not a healthy marriage. So, in one day, all of this catastrophically collapses in his life, and yet God had purposes in all of that that went far beyond Job. And when we read the book of Job, we learn that there was a whole heavenly host that was peering into these deep mysteries. Uh, the truths about the relationship between God and His people that Job was entirely unaware of. And Christians, we are still reading and benefiting from the handiwork of God in and through the life of Job. And I know none of you are saying, well, I don't want to be Job. I don't want to be Job either. But praise God that there was one that we can learn these truths from and be assured that God is always at work for our joy, even though His reasons are inscrutable to us. And so I'm not suggesting that if Job knew that there was more going on, that it would have made his suffering easier but Job, throughout the, throughout the account, is demanding an audience with God. And eventually, at the end, of the end of the book, he finally gets an audience with God to plead his case. In Job 38, verses 1-4, through 4, it says this. Job finally gets an audience with God, and here's what God says to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Question mark. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Now I might have had a little bit too much of of an edge to my tone there. Maybe not because God goes on for two more chapters asking questions like that. And when God finally pauses, Job's response is this in Job 40. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice I will proceed no further. So, you said, so what's the whole point of this? What I'm trying to do is help us as Christians. I'm trying to equip us to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus with joy. Even though we, we go through life with unfulfilled longings for good things and we ask God for over and over again. Friends, don't stop asking God for what is good. Trust Him. Trust Him. As much as we think we know better, we don't know what God knows. I think it's been summarized in a helpful quote this way. One Bible scholar said it this way. If we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what He gives. If we knew what God knows, we would ask, for, we would ask exactly for what He gives. Now, I know I haven't solved all the potential unrest in our souls as we try to have Matthew 7, 7 and 8 and these promises Overlay into our lives. I know I haven't answered those tensions, but I hope that this time together in the Word has encouraged and strengthened your faith to keep believing in a good God. He is always at work for your joy. I hope we're going to catch the marvelous grace and the enormous generosity of God to His children in these verses. Ask, seek, knock, and He's going to give you good. And here's the other blessing we don't need to worry about if what we're asking for is good. Because God knows, and He's only going to give what is good. So if you are to ask God for something and it's not good, He is not going to give you something out of spite just to teach you a lesson. He's He's going to give only what is going to be bringing about good in your life. So keep on asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Matthew 7 teaches us that we cannot exhaust God's readiness and eagerness to give us only what is good. So what does this mean? Do you need strength from God to forgive somebody? Ask Him. He will give you what is good. Do you lack strength to flee and fight temptation? Seek God. Blessed are the pure in heart. For what? They shall see God. Seek the Lord for strength and to fight temptation. We sang that this morning in that song, Lord, I Need You. Do you need more faith to believe? This morning, Matthew 7. Then seek God and ask God. Knock on His door and know Him to be your rock and your fortress. Is your eternal hope floundering? then knock and be assured that He will open the riches of His grace to you in Jesus Christ. Is your love for others growing cold? Are you on the edges of being resentful? Ask God who is love. God will give and give and give and give only what is good to you. Heaps and heaps of what is truly good. This is the God that we worship. Friends, if citizens of God's kingdom have such a generous Heavenly Father, how might this fact influence and change how kingdom citizens then relate to others? And that's what leads us to our third point. Kingdom citizens only do good to others because God only gives good to them. I know it's a mouthful, mouthful but... Christians only do good to others because God only does good to them. This is verse 12. This is how this connects. Then so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is what's commonly called the golden rule, which I discovered in studying for the sermon that that golden rule term is traditionally traced to the Roman Emperor Severus. He was not a Christian, pagan. But he was so impressed by this comprehensiveness of this of this uh, maxim from Jesus that he inscribed it on, or so it said, he inscribed it on a wall in gold lettering. And it's, I guess it's become known as the, the golden rule. Jesus, what he's doing here is he's taking a common phrase of the day and he's turning it from the negative into the positive. The common phrase of the day said, don't do to others what you don't want done to yourself. So withhold harm from others. Don't do to somebody what you don't want done to yourself. Jesus turns it around positively. You might think, well, it seems like a pr- pretty small change. But this change from negative to positive, it's been likened to the change between a harpsichord and a piano. And if you're not a piano music person, just hang in there with me. I think this will help you. But a harpsichord is an instrument that made its sound by plucking a string. Right? So it had one tone, one loudness, one dynamic range. Well, they made one change. They changed it from plucking a string to hitting a string. That's what's happening up here on Sunday mornings. There's a hammer hitting a string, making a noise, which means it can have a wide variety of dynamic ranges. Suddenly you had all these composers that were able to write these magnificent pieces of music for this new piano. One change one from plucking a string to hitting a string. And this is what Jesus does. He changes, it, changes this common phrase from negative to positive, and it becomes comprehensive. He's not just forbidding us from doing evil to others, but he calls us to actively do good to others. That's a big difference. And by the way, this is what God has done for us in Christ. This is the gospel. Jesus, God hasn't just simply withheld harm from us. He's done so much more. He's, through faith in Jesus Christ, He gives us forgiveness of sin and an eternal relationship with Him. He paid all of our sins and He restores us into right relationship with Him that we might enjoy Him, not for a day or for a moment or for a second or for a minute, but for all eternity. This is the Christian gospel. Ephesians 1 describes the lavish goodnesses of God this way. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purposes, which He set forth in Christ. I know there's a lot of words in there, but did you get the idea? Like pouring out and lavishing, that's the goodness of God. Are you a Christian? Have you turned from your love affair with sin and embraced Jesus to be your treasure? Have you experienced the grace of God that's described here in Ephesians 1? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, we learn that it is God's abundant goodness to his people that enables and strengthens Christians to treat others well. Christians are assured that God is going to only give them what is good. Now, maybe you're faltering a little bit on that. God could not prove that in any more spectacular fashion than through Jesus Christ. Romans 8 says it this way, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So Friends, because God only gives what is good to Christians, Christians are delivered from the temptation to need to coerce or exploit others to get good from them. Of all the people in the world, Christians are the ones who have the quiet confidence and freedom to do good to others, whatever, whatever their response may be to us. Christians are people who do good constantly. Christians have been treated so lavishly by God that we're empowered to pour out the excesses of that lavishness. It's not like we're, we're, we're missing out on something that God's given us. God has poured out so much, there's goodness dripping over the edges of our lives, so to speak, that we can hand out and give to others. This is one of the ways that we display the glory of God to a sin-broken world. Christians are people who are marked by radical generosity, which is, which is Matthew seven twelve. Do to others what you wish to be done to. Do unto others... Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You can summarize all of that in this rule of love. So here we, in Matthew 7. Kingdom citizens, how are we supposed to live? Where does this strength come from? To forgive others, to love others, to do good to others, to pray not hypocritically, to give not hypocritically, to, to make right judgments. How do we find the power to do that? We pray. And what assures us to pray? The goodness of God. And what, the, what does that effect have on our relationship with others? Well, the Christians are really a strange people. That Even though we are treated poorly in response, Christians are unrelenting in doing good to others because we have experienced the unrelenting goodness of God. If you're a Christian, I wonder if, how, if there's a way that this passage could encourage you to pray. What spiritual truths have you lost heart in? In what ways are you tempted just to kind of give up on this whole Christian idea. I hope that Matthew 7 will encourage your heart to press on. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you would love to know a God like this, personally. Not theoretically, but personally through Jesus Christ.